we are in the middle of a series um, from a book called The Story. Um, and so this is the book that we've been reading through. It's a church-wide reading plan that we're doing. And um, this is a book that has taken massive parts of Scripture and put them all together so that we can see the big story that's going on all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Um, you know, it's good for us to stop and read small parts of the Bible and really let that sink into us. But it's also really good for us to read um, big parts of Scripture to understand what is the biggest story, what is the bigger um, uh, thing that's going on in this, in this particular book or even in the whole entire Bible. Um, one of my lecturers used to use a word called the meta-narrative. And what that means is basically the biggest story, but it's just a really posh way to say it. And so we kind of had this joke that every time he said it, we had to take a sip of our cup of tea or coffee. Um, and so let's just say it was gone before lunch. Um, so we're looking at the meta-narrative, which means the biggest story that's going on. Um, but for those of you who um, maybe have just joined us recently, um, I encourage you to, you can still join in on our church-wide reading. Unfortunately, we don't have any cop hard copies left, but you can grab them electronically on Kindle or whatever um, app you use there. Um, so, to fill you in on the story so far, um, let me give you a bit of uh, background as to what we've looked at. So, to summarize, we started with God who created a perfect world. That included humans made in his image. The first humans were without sin and in perfect relationship with God. But humans rebelled because they wanted to be like God, and sin entered the world, and we live in a broken world today as a consequence of that sin. The humans were banished from Eden because of their sin, and God, God and humans were separated, and their relationship was broken. Ultimately, that's what happened in the garden. That perfect relationship was tainted. It was broken. But God had no desire to leave it like that. And so his plan for redemption began. And he chose Abraham and Sarah to start a new nation that would bless all nations. This was a nation that would stand out from the rest. It would stand out to the world. And Israel would be different so that the world would know God. And from Israel eventually would come Jesus. So from Abraham and Sarah came Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah gave birth to Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who would be the patriarchs of Israel. They'd be the 12 tribes of Israel. And they moved to Egypt to survive a famine. And in Egypt, the family exploded in numbers over the next 400 years. But also along the way, a new pharaoh decided to enslave the Israelites and use them to build cities. But God used Moses through a demonstration of God's mighty power, and he rescued them from slavery and led them out of Egypt towards the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham something like 700 years earlier. And so the Israelites, which we heard about last week, arrived at Mount Sinai, and they stayed there for just over 12 months, and learnt about God's vision for his people and, and lots of things like that. And so this is where we're at at the moment. We're at Mount Sinai, and all this stuff has gone on. For more than a year, Israel camped at Sinai, and every day they saw the evidence of God, his reality, and his power. 
They saw, um, they were saved from their idolatry. They built the tabernacle and they saw God's presence fill the tabernacle, a mighty and powerful thing. And after all this, one would think, in fact, I'm starting to think that they could probably walk faithfully with God at this point. After seeing all these things, it'd be a pretty um, good confidence booster for you to go, you know what, I'm all in for Jesus. I'll follow him no matter what. But unfortunately, this is not what happened with Israel. And so we start to read about that in chapter 6. So following hard on the heels of their departure from Sinai, Israel descends into constant grumbling. They went back and forth between complaining about their circumstances and asking God to help rescue them from their struggles. Just constant, backwards and forwards. They kept looking back to when they were slaves in Egypt and they even longed for that time. You know, they were looking back going, oh man, I remember when we were in, in Egypt, we had, some, we had some pretty good stuff there. And this is what they said in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 to 6. The rabble with them began to crave other foods. And again, the Israelites start, started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the, um, the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Man. That sounds like the beginning of something amazing. <laughs> I'm getting hungry reading this, and I love cooking. So, like, that's anyway. Sorry, back to the scripture. But now we have lost. Um, now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manner. You see, they were looking back at slavery and forgetting how bad it was. And so this brings me to my first point this morning that we learn from, from what's going on. And the first point is, the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. The greatest enemy is forgetfulness. And this is why I think this morning with um, you know, uh, Mark and the team, what they were leading us in, the songs that were chosen, the um, verses that were shared, they're all about reminding us of God's goodness, of his promises of his never-failing mercies that he brings before us. And when we, when we don't remind ourselves of these things, we end up like Israel, looking back at a time when we were in slavery. Like, I was never a slave, what are you talking about? Well, for Israel, they were looking back on a physical slavery when they were in Egypt, a time when they were oppressed, and they minimized... The, the horror of the slavery, and they also minimized the goodness of God. You see, for us, we were once a slave to sin. We were once under um, you know, the bondage of sin and, and were compelled that way, but then God separated us from that. Well, sorry, not the right wording. God won the victory over sin, and we no longer are a slave to sin. God is our new master. And so... What we learn from this is that the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness because we start to forget the goodness of God. Let me rephrase this in a positive light, something that we can take on board. This is, um, this is actually my first point. This will be my first point. 
Remembrance bolsters our faith. I think we have that up there. Yes. Remembrance bolsters our faith. It's twofold. To bolster our faith in times of, um, of need, we need to remember that God has, what God has done for us and for those around us. You know, how many times have I prayed and asked God for something or prayed for someone and he's come through and I've been like, that's amazing. But six months down the track or even a month down the track, it's kind of just in long-term memory, right? It's not something that I've accessed recently. But when we come back to those things and remind ourselves, we go, actually, no, God is good. God listens and he journeys through that life's ups and downs. The second thing is we need to remember God's promises for the future, to never leave us or forsake us, and that he has our best interests in mind. Ultimately, that's what our faith in Jesus is. We're, we're saying, you know, I trust God that you know what's best. And I will follow you because I know that if I follow you, that that is the best that I could, I could have, but it's also the best that others can experience in me as well. God is worthy of it. So remembrance bolsters our faith. But as we just read, Israel was struggling to remember these things, which brings them to this crisis of faith. Now, there's a lot that goes on in um, this chapter of the story, in chapter 6. Um, it's actually, I think it's one of the biggest chapters we've had so far. And so, uh, unfortunately, I can't dive into everything. So just a disclaimer head, um, straight up. I'm going to highlight a few things, but there are going to be things I'll miss out. But hopefully you guys read it. Um, <laughs> sorry, no pressure. But I encourage you to go read it, remembering that this is the meta-narrative so that you can dive back into the smaller parts with a greater understanding. So, here we come to this point where finally, after reaching the promised land for the first time, the people refuse to step forward in faith and trust that God would lead them. The Israelites were there at this land that was promised to Abraham. And God's saying, hey, you can enter here. Go check it out for yourself. And then move forward. But when the Lord called them to conquer those who already occupied the land, they flatly refused. After some who were sent to explore the land exclaimed that the people who lived there were powerful, they were tall, we looked like grasshoppers to them, and the city is fortified. Yes, it's a good place. But these things, look at them. And as a result, an entire generation were condemned to wander the desert for 40 years and never enter the promised land. But here's the thing. Not all of the people who explored, and, um, explored the land focused on the impossible nature of what God was calling them to. Joshua and Caleb pleaded with the people to remember that it was God who would deliver this land to them, that it's not in their own strength that they would do it, and that they would see victory if they just trusted and had faith in God. And this is what it says in Numbers 14, 5 to 9. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. They've fallen down because the people are saying, no, we can't do this. What are you doing? So they've fallen down before them. 
In verse 6, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephun. I've never been able to say that name. Anyone want to have a go? Sounds right. Jephunneh. There we go. Who were among those who had explored the land. They tore their clothes. This is a sign of extreme agony and sorrow for what's going on. They tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Here's my second point for us this morning. When facing a challenge to your faith, focus on what matters. And what matters is God. You see, again and again, God asked Israel a simple question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me to provide you with food and drink? Do you trust me to give you victory against your enemies? And you'll see that Joshua and Caleb, they didn't shy away from the fact that there was difficulties ahead. You know, they saw the land. They went, you know, we see that these people are strong and that it's fortified. They didn't bury their head in the sand. But their main focus was on, okay, what is God doing in this moment? What is God about here? Well, he's called us to do this. That's, that's a, a key factor. He's said that I will give you victory. You should take this land. And so it was no longer an issue for them to step out in faith because they knew the challenge, but they knew their God. And I think that's a key for us. When facing a challenge to your faith, focus on what matters. That's God. As Israel stood at the border of the promised land, they were one step away from experiencing the fulfillment of God's amazing promise to Abraham. 500 years earlier, Abraham had been a desert wanderer too, just like Israel. But now the Lord had led Israel to their inheritance that he had promised, to this promised land. And sadly, they did not have the same faith as their ancestor before them, Abraham. They were too busy focusing on what they thought was possible or impossible for them to achieve and rather than focusing on what God could do through them. And so for 40 years of, uh, 40 years of wandering started in the desert. So here's a few things I want to highlight in that time. Firstly, while they're in the desert, Israel had two different battles that they were fighting. Okay, the first was the sword, you know, being attacked from enemy armies, right? And we see in one of the chapters in Numbers 21 that three times they were attacked. And three times it was not them waging war on someone else, it was other kings attacking them. In fact, the first time they were attacked, it was the Canaanite king of Arad who lived in Negev. That's it, Negev. And they were attacked 
And they even took some of Israel captive. And they cried out to the Lord. They're like, God, if you give us victory, then we will destroy this, um, this nation in your name. You know, if you give us the strength. And the Lord says, go and do this. And so they got the captives back. The second time, the king Sihon of the Amorites, they attacked, but they overcame in the Lord's strength. Lastly, it was uh, King Og of Bashan, who they even said to him, you know what, we're not going to um, touch your vineyards, we're not going to drink your water, we won't turn off the king's path, we'll, we'll go straight through. You don't have to worry about us, we just want to pass through your land. But this king was like, too bad, and attacked them. But their zeal for the Lord helped them overcome. So each time they were attacked, they trusted God to deliver them, and they acted quickly and with zeal. They stepped out in faith. And at this point, I'm starting to think, well, it looks like Israel's getting the hang of this. They're starting to figure out that they're meant to have faith in God, to trust him. And if they step out in faith, that the Lord will do what he promised to do. It's a good thing. They are learning. But enemy armies were not the only foes Israel encountered. The greater battle actually lay within, a battle wearing for their allegiance of their hearts. The people of Israel repeatedly squared off against the constant temptation of idolatry, of putting something above God rather than God himself. This battle as we will see, was one that they um, you know, too often ended up losing. Even as the Lord was delivering the nation from, curse, um, from a curse from the Moabite king, uh, his name was Blake, the Israelites were embracing Moabite religion and making ritual prostitution a part of their worship. So what happened was this um, King Blake, um, he wanted to destroy Israel. And so he sought a man by the name of Balaam and he asked him to curse Israel so that the Lord would no longer be with them and he could you know, overthrow them and destroy them. But God took what King Blake wanted to um, use to destroy Israel and for evil and he used it for good. Because Balaam, each time when he sought after the Lord, he said, you know what? No, don't destroy them. In fact, I want you to bless them. So God turned what the world wanted to do to Israel, um, what, he wanted, what they wanted to do for evil, he turned it into good. He turned it into a blessing. But unfortunately, like immediately afterwards, we see that they were um, worshipping other things. But here's the thing. The Lord offers a way to make things right again. You know, he so desires for Israel to know what it means to walk closely with their God. And he doesn't just wash over the fact that, you know, this this sin is happening and that idolatry is going on. You know, it's still serious. So God offers a way for them to make this right. And it's pretty pretty intense. Basically, they need to put to death all those who had joined in worshipping Baal of Peor, which is that prostitution worship. Just as Moses finished making this decree known to the people, a disturbing scene plays out. 
where an Israelite man brings a Midianite woman into his tent right before their eyes of Moses and the people. That's pretty blatant. But that's not the disturbing part. The bit that's hard for us to read is that, that a man named Phineas, who was the grandson of Aaron, the priest, jumped up, took a spear, and thrust the spear through the man and into the woman. And when the Lord saw Phineas's zeal for getting rid of this idolatry that was permeating through Israel, the Lord was pleased. And we go, ooh, that doesn't sound nice. And I guess it's just hard because the culture in which the Israelites were living in was so different from the culture that we live now, and yet they had similar issues, right? And so their way to deal with it was a lot different than what we would do. But here's the thing. I think the principle is what God is trying to communicate, and that's what we need to take from this. And what we learn is that the battle against idolatry requires the same level of passion and commitment as fighting against an enemy army. You see, the Israelites were good at, 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 at you know, taking on armies, maybe not all of them, but they were getting good at taking on armies and going, you know, in faith, God will do this. But when it came to idolatry, that passion and zeal kind of just reduced, and they went, that's ah, okay. We can just deal with that. Maybe we'll just stop doing it, but we'll keep the temptation around. Here's the good news, though. When it comes to temptations that are in our lives and these things that take the place of God, the good news is that we don't fight alone. In Isaiah 53, 4-5, this is what it says. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, Jesus has won the victory. This passage of scripture was written before Jesus came, actually, to be honest. This was before Jesus came. But now we can look back and see that it perfectly describes what Jesus did for us on the cross. You see, Jesus came, he took our sin on his shoulders and the consequences that go along with it. Then he suffered for us and died in our place and rose victorious over the power of sin. He did this so that whoever chooses to accept his perfect sacrifice will receive through him victory over the powers of sin. Often we quote this verse, speaking only of the physical healing that can come from Christ's sacrifice. But we often forget the spiritual healing, which is actually more explicitly um, mentioned in the passage. You know, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That means his sacrifice dealt with our sinful nature. It dealt with um, our transgressions and our infirmities. All these things God dealt with And so when we come against temptations in our daily lives, we can remember that Christ's victory over sin, we can remember Christ's victory over sin and know that we do not fight this battle alone. 
And that's my third point. We do not fight our battles alone. Christ fights with us and for us. So let's return back to the story of Israel. A lot happened in the 40 years, and as I mentioned, I can't cover it all in this 20 to 25 minute sermon. But after 40 years of wandering, as Israel approached their inheritance a second time, Moses, the great lawgiver, gives his farewell address because he too sinned against God and was not able to enter the promised land. Moses was a man who was faithful time and time again. You see it as you read the story. He's this humble guy who constantly seeks after God's heart and, and faithfully walks with God. And that's great. That's, that's awesome. I don't want to minimize that. But here's the thing. Even his faithful obedience did not give him license to sin. Not even once. And I'm referring to that time when, when the people were grumbling and they're like, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we need water. And Moses goes before God and he's, he's pleading, God, I don't know what to do. How do I, what do I do with these people? How am I going get, to get water for them? And God says, speak to the rock and I will make water come out of it. And in, well, he says, take your staff and speak to the rock. And Moses, in his maybe frustration or anger, he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it twice. He's like, bah, bah. it's probably the sound it made. And God was still faithful and produced water. But he's like, Moses, what are you doing, mate? Trust me. And unfortunately, because of that, because he was not, um, because of his sin in that moment, he too was disqualified from going into the promised land. But here we are at the promised land. And we see that in all these ups and downs with Israel, that God is the glorious, faithful, covenant-keeping saviour of his chosen people, despite their constant disobedience and sin. You know, God didn't leave them to their own devices. He was constantly calling them back to him. For us, this is what we take from this. So I'm going to recap my points for you. Firstly, we need to know that remembrance bolsters our faith. Remembrance bolsters our faith. And so that's why we gather on a Sunday morning because it's a time for us to corporately remember who God is, for us to bolster each other's faith up. Secondly, when facing a challenge to your faith, focus on what matters, and that's God. It's not that we bury our head you know, with all the, the trials and the struggles that are before us. They're there, and we need to consider them, but our main focus is on God. What is he doing in this moment? What is he calling me to? What is he wanting me to do? Because what he has is best. And lastly, amongst all of this, we do not fight our battles alone. God has won the victory for us ultimately. But we also have the church. We have each other who stand alongside us. So to summarize, well, to round this chapter on its end, during the desert years, God shaped and formed a man named Joshua into a capable successor for Moses. And so 
as they're about to head into the promised land, Moses hands over the leadership of Israel to Joshua, just as they were about to enter. And so what that means is the story is going to continue next week, and we're going to hear more about that. But this week, I just want to encourage you. You know, our faith in God is something that, that we can bolster. And I guess the key point is, is that remembrance. So I'm going to pray for you, and as the, the band comes up, we're going to sing and give God some praise. And I just want you to take this time to remember the goodness of God. Remember what it is that he has saved you from and give him the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a, a good father and that we can read scripture to see you know, what you've been doing in creation since the beginning. And God, there seems to be this theme of like constantly longing for us to come back to you so that you can pour your love into us and show us what it means to live a life that is holy and pleasing. Lord, this week I pray that you would help us to remember the times when you have been close and the times where you have come through. And Lord, that we may remember the promises for the future. Lord, we thank you in your name. Amen.